Thank you for tuning in to today's audio message. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we are a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you here. Thank you so much for, for being here. Uh, this is our third week in our summer series. We are uh, in the summer series called No Matter What. We're studying through the book of Philippians. And so if you have a Bible, can you find that and see if you can find the book of Philippians? We're going to uh, continue looking in chapter 1. And uh, it's really exciting for us, to, for us to be able to study this together. And I'm really looking forward to it. I feel like I need to be extra excited to make up for the disappointment when you guys realize who's speaking today. So I'm going to be extra excited, and we'll kind of even it out that way. Um, but we have really had a, a great start to this series. Uh, Pastor Dave kicked it off uh, two weeks ago and uh, talked about, in those first few verses, talks about when Paul writes to that group in that church of the city of Philippi, and he writes to them and he says, I've got you in my mind, and I've got you in my heart, and I've got you in my prayers. And he talks about that relationship that they have, that they can enjoy the joy that comes from that, being in that bond with Jesus Christ together. And he talks about joy, and he talks about uh, the joy that he can receive, this whole book about joy. And then last week we were uh, really privileged to have uh, Pastor Terry come and be with us for one week and uh, take it from where Dave left it when he talked about joy and happiness being different. And Pastor Terry, if you remember, he talked about happiness is the feeling that we feel when the things happen to us the way we want them to happen to us, the feelings we feel. That's what happiness is. And he also reminded us that the Bible doesn't talk about happiness. The Bible doesn't talk about happiness. It talks about joy. And he said there's a difference between that. The, the joy is much deeper. It's kind of a longing that is fulfilled when it's, a, when it's connected to a proper purpose. And we are really privileged to be able to hear that from Terry last week. And he talked about, if you remember, the things that steal our joy. Remember the things that steal joy from us. First, he says it can be our circumstances. Because this book is this book about joy, but Paul's writing it from prison. And yet he's writing a book about joy. And it's really, the book is how do you experience joy when your circumstances don't make you happy. And that's a great way that Terry told us about it. He says sometimes our circumstances can steal our joy from us if we let them. But in response, in order to combat that, we are supposed to magnify our God and minimize our circumstances. He says also that people can steal our joy. And we've all experienced that. Uh, and he says even Paul talks about the people who were in opposition to him, that were stealing, trying to steal his joy, and yet his response needed to be the same thing. I need to magnify God and minimize those who would try to steal my joy. And then he also mentioned that selfishness. We can be the ones, the architects of stealing our own joy. When we trade the purpose for which we were made with something else. Sometimes we think, I can find joy if I can just fill in the blank. If I can be, if I could do, whatever it might be. And we think, that's going to bring us joy. And then we may accomplish that. We may find that fulfilled, and we don't find it fulfilling. We don't find joy in that because we're looking for joy in a place where it's not, it's not created to be. Jesus needs to be our purpose. He said four out of five people don't have purpose in their life. They report they don't have purpose. And if that's the case, that's a sad thing because that means they'll never experience joy. If joy is a longing fulfilled and you have no purpose, you have no longing to be fulfilled. 
So that's kind of the background to what these next verses are. We're going to start in verse 27. And he's going to start, if you find Philippians chapter 1, he's going to start in verse 27, and he's going to say two words, whatever happens. Whatever happens. That's a, a big thing to say. It's a kind of an all-inclusive sort of statement. And it's, it's kind of ominous as far as I'm concerned because he says, have you ever talked to anybody and they said, well, whatever happens, and you think, what's coming next might not be good. Whatever happens, right? Who knows what that's going to be? Paul knows that his experiences haven't always led to happiness. Paul knows what it is to be disappointed. He knows what it is to be prisoned. He knows what it is to be shipwrecked and to be beaten because of his faith. He knows all of those things, and he knows that there will be continually more things to happen. And yet he said, in light of all that we've heard already, he says, whatever happens, and he's going to go on to tell us something. He knows that things are going to continue to happen. Circumstances aren't always going to be good. We do this kind of whatever happens sort of thing every once in a while in our own lives. When we get married, we tell our spouse, we promise, whatever happens, I'm going to be with you. Whatever happens, I'm going to love you. Whatever happens, right? We said those kinds of, that's a kind of a whatever happens moment. When maybe we send our kids off to school for the very first time, and we say, whatever happens, mommy and daddy love you, right? And some kids really don't want to go. My kid never even saw, like we always saw it was the back of his head. He's like, okay, we just want to talk to you about, oh, he's gone already. <laughs> uh, but there's those one, whatever happens kind of moments. We had one in our family this week. Uh, my son, who's 12, uh, Owen and I decided we would float down a section of the river and get out at Blue Water Bridge, just a short section. So we walked up, and we, get, we didn't really plan it well. We didn't have any flotation devices. We didn't have any um, uh, brightly colored clothing. Uh, there's a lot of things we didn't have. Um, a clue, that was probably one of them. <laughs> but it looked fun, so we decided we would do that, and uh, we were super excited about it. My wife was a little bit nervous, so it turned into a whatever-happens moment. Right? We said, we said, uh, we kind of, we said we loved each other, but almost in our heads it was like we were saying our goodbyes just in case, right? <laughs> so, so we got in and obviously it worked out okay. At least I made it, as far as you know. So, uh, but we had a great time. But there's those times in our life where there's whatever happens moments. And we realize there's something significant that might occur. And we need to have a moment to get out the truth, to get out the, the deep things that we want to say. And Paul has set this up for a whatever happens moment. He said, whatever happens. And the next word, next phrase that he says is a phrase that's just packed with meaning. He says, first, whatever happens, and then he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is saying a lot. He's saying, whatever happens, circumstances will come and go. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I remember thinking, what does that mean? It's a little bit nebulous. It doesn't, there's no specifics there. So what does it mean? It says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, it's, I would say first, it seems as though how we live matters. He seems to be addressing how we live. So apparently, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, and that's what this church in the city of Philippi was, a group of people who are followers of Jesus, who've been connected with Jesus and are connecting with one another. And he says to them, how you live seems to matter. 
well, what's the standard? My next question is, well, what's the standard? And it says here that the standard is worthy of the gospel of Christ. That sounds like a high standard, but I don't really know what it means. And I think here is where some people, um, some Christians, like to insert their own idea of what it means to live a life, conduct themselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. Where we might be tempted to say, let's just insert a little list here, maybe a list of do's. Or maybe a little longer list of don'ts. And we'll say this is what it means to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, Paul who writes this letter, he doesn't give us a super long list. He gives us a list of a couple of do's. But this idea of conducting yourself, it's a, it's a bit of a political word. Um, this idea of conducting yourself really denotes, um, it's a connotation that's supposed to be brought up into this idea of citizenry. And it says, the, it has the concept of those people are supposed to live in such a way as to further or seek the credit, the safety, the peace, and the prosperity of their city. That's the idea of conducting yourself. In fact, this word that we have conduct is what we get our English word from the original Greek, the word that's used is what we get our word politic from, or politician. And so the concept behind a politician is one who is supposed to work toward the credit and the peace and the prosperity and the safety of their community, of their city, or of their region that they represent. And so he's saying this to this group of believers, conduct yourselves. It's like you're a member of a group and you need to beware that you're supposed to conduct yourselves in a way that's for the the prosperity and the peace and the safety and security of that group. Now this group in Philippi, this word meant even a little bit more to them. Because they could think back, maybe some of them had been alive or they certainly had heard the stories, maybe 80 years to 90 years before this, this city of Philippi was the site of a great battle. Julius Caesar had been killed and there were those who had, were responsible for his death. And the army that they had of about 100,000 had been trying to get away. There had been people who were behind Caesar and were trying to avenge his death. And they had an army of about 100,000 and they were chasing. Eventually, for about three weeks in the month of October, about 42 B.C., there was a battle in and around the region of Philippi. Those who were the supporters of Julius Caesar won the battle. And as a thank you to the city of Philippi, they granted them citizenship, Roman citizenship. Now, if you know where Philippi is, it's in Macedonia. It's about a thousand miles away from Rome. So this idea of representing a city, living in a way that represents the, the place that you're with, your colony, meant something more to them. They would recognize, okay, we are Roman citizens, even though we're a thousand miles away. We're Roman citizens. And so he says this idea of conducting ourselves, it's an important thing. They were colonists. They were citizens of Rome, a thousand miles away from Macedonia. And I think Paul is taking this concept, and he's giving it to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And he's applying it to us as well. We may live in a certain area. But as followers of Jesus, we are members of another government. We are members of another colony. 
He says you can't have, he's, in fact, he's saying that you can't have a similar attitude to the rest of the citizens of your area. He says you belong to a colony of heaven. That's what we as believers, we belong to a colony of heaven. And therefore, we should behave as though we are citizens of heaven. That's the picture of the Christian in the world, that we should let the manner of our conduct be worthy of the government to which we belong. So if we are members and citizens of heaven, our conduct should reflect that. And are you not tempted to make a list, maybe in your head, of what that would look like? What should a citizen of heaven look like? What should they act like? What should they say? What should they do? What should they not do? What should they not? We start thinking of lists. And Paul, before we have too much of a chance to start making our own list of what we think a citizen heaven should, should live like and should look like, he talks about this next phrase that he's going to, just, he's going to uh, give to us. But he says the next single word, then. He says, first, I want you to recognize that you need to conduct yourselves in such a way as to properly, to be a part of um, this concept. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want you to conduct yourselves that way. But, he says, then. So that's just step one. Conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, he says, it doesn't matter. He says, whether I come to see you or whether my circumstances prevent me from seeing you. Then, regardless of whether I'm there or not, whether I, he says, whether I come and see you or I only hear about you in my absence. He's expecting the same response, whether he comes to see it for himself or he hears it from somebody else that these people are conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, and this is how he describes it, then in uh, that very same verse, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. That's the beginning of his list of what it looks like to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm is the idea of not wavering. I know that I believe in Jesus. I know that he's the Son of God and that he died for my sin. And I repent of my sin. I turn my back on my sin and I follow Jesus. That's what I want to do. And he says because of that, he wants us to stand firm in that. Don't give up in that. There are lots of people throughout Christian history and maybe people that you know who once said those things but don't, haven't stood firm in it. Paul is saying to this group, stand firm in what you know to be the truth. Stand firm in what you believe. But he also says, stand firm in one spirit. We'll find out in chapter 4, this is kind of a little bit of foreshadowing, because there's some people that are not standing firm in one spirit in this church. And he's actually going to identify them by name. You know, when I was a kid, I used to think, well, wouldn't it be cool to have your name in the Bible? And I think, well, it depends on who it is, right? <laughs> I wouldn't want to be these two people that we're going to look at in chapter 4 because he's basically telling them, you know, you guys got to get your act together individually, spiritually. You got to get your act together corporately. As a church, you need to get your act together because we need to live in that specific way. And so he says that he will know whether he's there to visit or whether he's not able even to visit them, that he will hear in his own absence that he will know that this group of people stand firm in one spirit. You know, he's talking about unity. 
And he's going to talk about unity in a number of different ways in the next chapters. But nothing seems to to be able to frustrate the advance of the gospel, this good news, more than internal unrest among believers. And he's addressing it here. Stand firm in one spirit. Be unified. Stand firm in one spirit. History is riddled with examples of believers who hinder the message of the gospel. Think of the message that the gospel is, this good news. First, we need to understand that we're all in the same situation. Humanity throughout world's history and anywhere geographically in our world, we're all in the same situation. We are separated from God because of our actions, because of our sin. But God loves us. In fact, he loved us so much that he sent his son to die in our place so that we could be a part of his family. An incredible, that's, and that's the message we've got, we get to give people. We don't have a bad message. We've got a great message, a message of redemption, a message of reconciliation, a message of salvation. We have that message. And yet the message gets clouded, gets occluded, gets distorted, and sometimes gets disqualified because of how we present it or how we present ourselves. And I was looking at a number of different stories about divisions in churches and why there are divisions in churches. And Paul addresses that in a number of his letters. But I was reading, there was one, there was a church that was divided, two groups. And they had been fighting for a long time. And it took a while for them to, uh, at one point, it said, well, they don't even know how this fight started. But it was basically, it ended up being an us and them situation. And they finally figured out and went back far enough in history. And it turned out, it came down to one thing that started the argument. And it was much smaller than the argument became. There was one lady who came to the church meal and brought a congealed salad but used Cool Whip instead of whipping cream in the congealed salad. And there became a little bit of a disagreement. And that apparently, that's where the disagreement started. And there were two divisions in the church. And it came back to that in history. Right? That seems ridiculous to think about it. There is actually, I read an article of just this last couple of weeks. There was a, a church, an organization, that had a connection with a lot of different churches. And they just sent out, uh, give us some stories that you've had, that you've had experience about divisions in your church. F- fights that have, or disagreements or arguments that have happened. And they were flooded. They, weren't, they were surprised at how much of a response they got. And I'm just going to give a few of you, a few of them to you. There was a church that argued um, and ended up having to vote to decide whether or not to take the clock down in the auditorium. They had a fight over it and an argument and ended up having a vote. There was another church that reported a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet they should buy. And there were some that were on the brown side, and there were some that were on the black side, and then there was also other options, like whether it was was supposed to be a two-door, a three-door, or a four-door filing cabinet. They had a 45-minute argument about that. That seems ridiculous, only because you don't have, you weren't there. They would say, well, you weren't there. It was important at the time. There was another church that had a fight over which picture of Jesus to hang in the lobby. That's, that, that was, I mean, some of them seem ridiculous. They all seem ridiculous the more you think about it. There were two churches, oh, there was one, churches, one church that sent around, somebody started a petition 
Um, and they had it signed, and a petition went around the church, and a number of people signed the petition because they wanted to have all staff members be clean-shaven. That was, that was an issue in, in that particular church. There was another church that, or there's two specific churches that um, reported arguments over coffee. There was one that the church moved from Folgers to a stronger, um, stronger Starbucks blend. And people were unhappy with it. There was another church that said, we, just, we didn't change brands. We just went from the blend that we normally had to a little bit of a stronger blend. And they had members, they report that they had members leave the church because of that. And I just sort of think, what would you say as you're walking out the door? Well, if that's the kind of coffee you're going to serve, I don't want to be a part of this group. I'm going to go and get the mild coffee Baptist church going. It's just strange, right? The things that you think of, like, why would people rise to this level or sink to this level? There was another church that argued and had a real long discussion over whether or not they should allow deviled eggs at a church function. (laughs) That was, I don't know. Well, there was another one recently, apparently, that had an argument over whether or not their... um, communion service should be gluten-free or have a gluten-free option. They had a real argument over that. And some of you actually think that gluten is a sin. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure about that one. I wasn't sure how long I was going to have to wait for that. Um, there was another church that argued about plants, whether they should be real or fake, and whether they should be removed from the pot, podium or not. And I was talking to Pastor Donald this week about all these different arguments, and he says, oh, I've got one for you. He remembers being in, uh, when he was growing up, a kid in a church business meeting, and there was one person that got up and said, by whose authority has the foyer been painted? And I found out later, he told, as he tells the story, the the paint color hadn't changed. It had just been repainted the same color. And apparently it was a big problem. There is a reason why Paul talks to churches about unity. Because we tend to be disunified. We have our own opinions. And sometimes we think our opinions are important to the, to the point where we need to stand up for our opinions or our preferences. Paul says... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the first thing he talks about is standing firm in one spirit. He talks about unity. The first thing that he talks about. And then he says, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. His second thing is unity. He says, striving together as one. I picture people striving together, a giant dragon boat. We're all rowing together. I picture a tug of war where the team that wins is always the team that's pulling together. It's work. It's hard work. And that's what he says, striving together, working hard together. But he talks about working hard together as one. It only works. It only works well. It's only effective if we work together as one. We can't pull back on each other He says we're supposed to work together as one. He's talking about unity and how important unity is. I've found personally um, 
my experience and my memory goes back in this, that I have a tendency to open my mouth. Wait a minute, let me, before I say this, <laughs> before I say this, uh, I, usually I like to tell people don't nudge the person beside you. But today, I think it might be good because I want to see, because it's about keeping your mouth closed and whether or not these people that get nudged will be able to keep their mouth closed. Because I would have a hard time with this one. I have found that I have a tendency to react verbally. I always want to give my opinion. And it's just a reaction. Sometimes I don't even necessarily need time to think about what I think. I just want to say something. And I have a tendency I just want to say, right? So if I was sitting down and someone was preaching this and my wife would be allowed to, to nudge me, I would still, even when I got a nudge, I would say, hey, wait a minute, what's that for? Right? We just, I, sometimes keeping my mouth closed is the best way to keep unity. And I don't mean that we have to keep our opinions to ourselves, and I don't mean that we can't give our, but I need to be careful at how I say things. Because I can elevate a situation, or I can de-escalate a situation. And we all can, with how we speak. If we're going around and saying things like, by what authority, or by whose authority has the lobby been painted? Right? If we say those kinds of things, that's going to escalate things in, away from unity. We need to find out ways to say things to be unified. And I need to do that. That's, that's where I struggle. I have a tendency to, and my brain goes way behind my mouth, and I always get in trouble by the time I catch up. So you need to figure out, I need to figure out places where I add to the unity of the church. And I've found in many cases... There are things that happen in churches that aren't according to the way I would like them to go. But I've also realized that 99% of those, or higher, are preferences. Someone made a choice, and it was probably not my preference. So I have to decide whether I get upset that I didn't get my preference chosen, or whether I'm going to keep my mouth closed, because I realize it's a preference. It's not about right and wrong. Many of these, argu these arguments that we've heard this morning that churches experienced weren't about what's right or wrong, and yet they split the church. How effective is that church? There's a church in Nova Scotia who years ago, more than 20 years ago, uh, really had a heated discussion going in one of their business meetings, and it got to the point where uh, it got physical. A physical confrontation happened. In fact, the physical confrontation grew into uh, more than just two people. And eventually, the police had to be called. And the police came and, and separated the, the, all the fighting factions and tried to get things. And now, to this day, 20 and more years later, anytime a siren goes off, there are people in that town say, Oh, the Baptist church must be having a meeting. So as funny as it sounds, it's also tragic, right? Imagine those people, if they want to get their, their message out that God has given them, this message of salvation, of reconciliation, of forgiveness. Like, how are they going to even give that message? How would they be received, right? And that shows you the power of unity and the destructive power when unity is not there. Paul is wanting us to focus on the fact that we should strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Here's something from just a handful of years ago in Landover, Maryland, just south of the border here. 
And it starts, it's an article. It starts off, 100 years of Christian fellowship, unity, and community outreach ended last Tuesday in an act of congregational discord. Holy Creek Baptist Church was split into multiple factions. The source of the dissension is a piano bench which still sits behind the 1923 Steinway piano to the left of the pulpit. Members and friends at Holy Creek Baptist say that the old bench was always a source of hostility. At present, Holy Creek Congregation will be having four services each Sunday. There has been an agreement mediated by an outside pastor so that each faction will have its own separate service with its own separate pastor. Since the lead pastor is not speaking to the associate pastors, each will have their own service, which will be attended by factioned members. The services are far enough apart that neither group will come into contact with the other. An outside party will be moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between services as to please all sides and avoid any further conflict that could result in violence. Isn't that terrible? And it all came down to something ridiculous, but you can see how it grows. And it's not about the piano bench there, right? And it's not about the coffee, and it's not about, but it's about unity. And we need to be careful to realize that what God wants for us is to strive together as one, right? Sometimes it's going to mean I set aside my preferences. Sometimes it's going to mean you set aside your preferences. But it's for a greater purpose. It's so that we can not be disqualified from bringing this good news. This good news to a a world, to a, a region, to a city that needs Jesus. And so he says, striving together as one. For the faith of the gospel. And then he says, to prepare them for the whatever happens that he started with. In verse 28, he says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. There's going to be trouble from outside of the church. There's going to be, for Philippi, for this church in this city, There's going to be times when they face some suffering. They face some difficulty. And Paul says, number one, we need to be unified if we're going to make it through. And then he says, as you face this, he says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. There will be those who oppose. But Paul says that we should not be frightened of that. But he doesn't mean that we should engage in a battle either. Our battle is not with people who oppose us. The people who oppose us need Jesus just as much as we do. But there is suffering coming that Paul knows is is going to happen to this church in this city. And he views suffering. And here's a guy that's experienced suffering. 
If anybody knew what suffering was like, he's in prison. He's been beaten. He's been left for dead. He was shipwrecked. He spent a a day and a night uh, in the open water not knowing whether he was going to survive. He knows, and this is all because of the fact that he's trying to tell people about this good news of Jesus Christ. And so he knows what it is to have hardship. He knows what it is to have difficult circumstances. And he knows what it is to be suffering because of what Jesus, the message of Jesus. And yet he considers this suffering as a gift. And he tells in uh, Romans, in a number of different places in Romans, why he thinks suffering is a gift. Because he says it gives, it yields proven character. And it gives us hope. And it yields future glory. And it connects us more closely with Jesus who suffered for us as well. So when it comes down to these verses, he starts off with saying, no matter what. That word is you, and some of you have, might have different versions of the Bible. It says, some say only, but the idea is, let's keep this in mind. Regardless of the circumstances that have come in the past or what will come in the future, regardless of what is going to happen, keep this in mind. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he says two things about unity. If you want to know what it is to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, it's not a great big long list of do's and a great big longer list of don'ts. It's conduct yourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's conducting yourselves striving together as one so that we can tell others, our world, that they need Jesus. The answer is Jesus. The answer for us has been Jesus. We're not good enough. Nobody's good enough, but God wants to forgive us. God sacrificed his son to forgive us. He doesn't want to withhold forgiveness. We need to maybe change the way we think of God. We sometimes think of God that uh, he made this way of salvation, but only gives it out reluctantly. He didn't allow his son to die for our sins so that he can just give it out reluctantly. He wants it to have the, the greatest benefit that's possible. He wants to give his salvation to all. In fact, it says in his word that he doesn't want anyone to perish without forgiveness. And so he wants us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that looks like unity, and it looks like striving together as one, and it looks like there might be persecution and suffering coming, but we need to be together. What a great message we have. A message of salvation for the world. And we have the opportunity to hand it out to our neighbors. Do you know your neighbor? Do you know your... I'm still getting... We've been here for a little over a year, and there's some neighbors I know their name, and some neighbors I don't know their name. And I've been there for over a year now, and I can't ask their name anymore, so I have to listen over the fence for when one calls the other one. And then run inside, write it, oh, it was Steve, it was Steve. (laughs) I want to get to know my neighbors, and we talk a little bit, but it's not about just getting to know our neighbors. We need to let our neighbors know that Jesus loves them, right? We need to know, we need to let our co-workers know that Jesus loves them. People that we meet, we have opportunities to bring this gospel message that salvation is for all of us. Salvation is something we all need, and God is just excited to give it to us if we just ask. Just turn away from our sin and ask him to forgive it. Give us incredible God of love that we have. 
Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your everlasting arms that we can lean on. Lord, I thank you for the forgiveness that you grant to anyone who asks for forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be faithful to bring that message. But Lord, I pray that you will help our conduct to be such that it doesn't impede your message. Lord, I pray that you will help us to strive together. I pray that you will help us to be unified. I pray that you will be pleased with our conduct as it is becoming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.